There is no other place I would rather be today, and I know you think I'm supposed to say that because I'm clearly going to say something this morning. I'm wearing a suit. The last time I wore a suit, believe it or not, was at my brother's wedding in December, and so this is new to me too, okay? I I told my wife this morning that uh, the only thing I regret about being the speaker this morning is that I've got to try to save my voice and I'm not going to scream along. I told myself I would not scream along with the verses of these songs along with Andy, and that clearly did not happen this morning. Shamed myself. I almost knocked my microphone off, I think. Um, well, in, in a room this size with this many people gathered just outside of one of the largest cities uh, in the world, Chicago, I know that there's probably people not only here from all over the United States, but quite possibly all over the world. And with that comes a lot of reasons why maybe we're here this morning. Some of you, this is your church home. This Evanston Bible Fellowship is where you call uh, your home. You're here many, many weeks out of the year. Others, you just happen to be in town. It doesn't feel right not to be in church on Easter, and somehow you found us. There's probably a few of us, if we were honest, that uh, were kind of dragged here reluctantly. You were in town with family members, and they said, well, if you're going to hang out with me today, you're coming to this church. And so you're here, and we we just welcome you, okay? Uh, The music's good. Um, And uh, some of you might have been lured here by the possibility of uh, a big Easter egg hunt afterwards. And again, you're welcome here, too. There might even be one or two of you here who were just walking by, maybe, and you looked at the top of this building and you saw etched in stone, Church of Christ Scientist. And you thought to yourself, I do like science. (laughs) And it's Easter, I should be in church. This, This very well could be my jam this morning. Well, we welcome you here, too. You might be a little surprised, though. Um, uh, I believe today, on an Easter Sunday like this, our house is full of the faithful, the lapsed, the curious, the skeptical, the adversarial, yes, and maybe the indifferent, those that just don't even care. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason you're here today, I hope that you gain a fresh look at Jesus. And I'm not talking necessarily about the Jesus that's maybe been shoved down your throat by other people about what they thought he was or who he is. I'm talking about the real Jesus that lived so long ago. And yes, skipping to the end, he lives today. I want you to pray with me. God, we've gathered here and we want to know deep down the reality of this great news of Easter. Some of us have heard this story so many times and yet we have never really let it sink in. We've never really understood it. I ask that like the disciples, you would open our minds to this familiar yet life-changing truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to get into your mind those moments after a great tragedy. I'm not necessarily talking about right when you hear the tragic news, whatever it might be. I want you to get in your mind those moments just beyond the hours or more of uncontrolled weeping, but not far enough down the road for any sense of normalcy. That disconnected, altogether numbness that comes from someone who has to try to figure out life again after stricken with great loss. You're alive and you're awake, but you're so full of grief. You're just staggering through the motions of daily life. You're just a shell. Maybe a friend or a family member has died. Maybe your child has been diagnosed with a debilitating or a terminal illness. 
Maybe your relationship has ended with lies and deceit. Whatever the circumstances, you are just to the point of keeping it together for a few moments at a time. And so you start to go about the things of daily life. Flowers have to be ordered for the funeral. Hospital visits have to be coordinated. The dishwasher needs to be loaded. Bags must be packed. Bills have to be paid. Kids have to be put to bed. How can life go on after this? And so you stagger around going through the motions. What am I supposed to do now? Maybe I've just described someone's life in this room right now. These are the circumstances and the state of despair we find this relatively small group of believers of this, of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. They came from all walks of life. They were fishermen, tax collectors, wives, mothers, husbands, and sons. Even Jesus, he was a carpenter from a small town in a small insignificant village of one of the many, many lands occupied by the great Roman Empire. These normal people had, over the last few years, they had dropped everything to follow and devote their lives to this rabbi, this great teacher who was so different. He healed the sick. He made those tired old stories that they had heard their whole life come to life again and have meaning and significance. They were won over by his compassion for the lowly. Many of them were those very lowly people. He associated with outcasts and sinners, and yet he confounded the wisest men of their time. And over time, many of them became convinced that he was not merely just a good teacher. No, this might be, this just might be the long-awaited Messiah. This, was the, this might be the promised Savior of Israel. And finally, Jehovah our God will make good on that long-ago promise to deliver us from oppression. Following him from place to place during those three years of public ministry of Jesus must have been some of the most amazing times as he healed and he taught and he healed and he taught. At the pinnacle of all this, just days before, Jesus had triumphantly come in to the capital city of Jerusalem, to the adoring crowds. This was it. The Messiah was so close. He was so close to a rise in power. And we, his closest followers, were here on the ground floor. We knew him back when. This is it. To say that those closest to Jesus were devastated beyond all imagination is as close as we can come to describing their state. The unthinkable had happened. Through a series of seemingly strange, random events, their leader, Messiah, friend, brother, and son had gone from great teacher and renown to pariah, torture, and death, all in a matter of hours. It's critical that we understand this con the context of Easter. Complete devastation is the backdrop of Easter Sunday. Complete loss of hope and shame is the context of Easter Sunday. And let's look. We're going to reread some of those verses we read before. We're going to start. We're actually going to tackle a whole chapter of the Bible this morning, which sounds kind of daunting, but we're going to jump in it, okay? Starting in verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 1, we are following a group of women at the very, very earliest parts of the morning going to the tomb of Jesus. Let's start reading in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. 
Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. So what we find here at the turning point of all of history, the moment of moments, mere seconds or minutes after the power of sin and the curse of death has been broken, we follow a group of women, tired beyond all words, carrying their grief and their shame, still grieving their greatest loss, going about the duties of preparing the body of Jesus for the long, slow decay that happens to all flesh. Let me tell you what we don't see. We don't see the scene, Jesus bursting down the doors of a meeting of all the great scribes and Pharisees and leaders and zinging them with powerful one-liners about his teaching and them cowering at his presence. We don't see the swords of the Roman soldiers melting away in their sheaths as the Roman Empire collapses because this God-man who's risen from the dead, who was there when that, the elements made to make those swords was spoken into existence. We want to see that, don't we? That's not what we see. Scripture overturns our expectation and takes our eyes away from the scene we expect and has us, and about what we think is important, our, our cultural assumptions about who and what is important. And it forces us to follow these women as they become the first to discover the greatest news ever told. To get an idea of the significance of how strange this part of the story is, we have to leave our modern context and get into the mind of a first century Jew living in Palestine. And as one writer said, like it or not, women were not regarded as credible witnesses in the ancient world. But here they are in all four gospel stories, front and center, the first witnesses, the very first apostles. To our modern ear, that understanding of that, that, that women were not regarded as credible witnesses, is appalling to us. But history bears out this painful truth. For much of recorded time, women have had little official power or influence in society. And this was no less true in first century Palestine. We have to grasp onto this truth, this, this peculiar yet powerful way God is overturning the tables of our messed up society already right at the announcement of his good news. You could insert any modern, impoverished, overlooked, or ignored part of our community today. And this is who would have first heard, believed, and preached the good news of Christ's victory over death. Not the important people. Not the supposed important people. This shouldn't shock us. You actually, if you've ever read through parts of the Bible, you don't even have to carefully read how God is doing something like this over and over again. It's not... Esau, the older brother, the firstborn. It's Jacob who carries the blessing, the, the secondborn. It's not the tall, good-looking Saul who becomes the great leader of Israel. It's the young shepherd boy, David. Speaking of shepherds, they are the first to hear that great choir of angels 33 years ago when that, the, the long-awaited Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, was born in that stable. And on and on it goes. We see in this passage that Jesus did not appear to the great, important leaders of the day, and he didn't even present himself to his own disciples. And we find out later that they just reject the story. Actually, we found out in this, right, is what we just read. From a human perspective, it's hard not to think that God chose the worst attenders to invite to this resurrection launch party of sorts. We have a tendency in Christianity to celebrity worship. 
We, we, have a, we have this belief that if just the right person becomes a believer in Jesus, then finally the world and all our friends and our coworkers will take us seriously. We even think this way about our children. If they'll just make friends with a good Christian, then maybe they'll become a strong Christian. The truth is that Scripture again and again, those who accept Jesus first and follow him the most faithful are frequently those whom society deems of less importance. And in Jesus' day, women were often disrespected commodities to be traded and discarded. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The greatest news of all came first, was accepted by and preached by some of society's least. This new kingdom of the resurrected Messiah is about the very last becoming the very first. We've got to keep going here if we're going to make it through the whole chapter, so let's read on. Let's start in verse 13. Let's see what happens next. The very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you were holding with each other as you walked? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Please stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They told him what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. There is there's so, so much in this short story of Jesus' post-resurrection encounter with a couple of his followers. We're not going to focus on all of it. But let's just first accept that after his resurrection, Jesus' body is, is a real, it's his real physical body. Uh, but it is different. We know that it, it still bears the scars from his torturous death because over and over again, he actually asked people to touch those same scars. 
We know that he walks, he talks like another human being. He even gets hungry. In this uh, part of the story, he eats bread. Later on, he eats fish. We even know how it was prepared. It was broiled fish, okay? This is really Jesus. But there's some other things that are different. He seems, as in this passage, to not be recognizable to the people who followed him around for a few years. That's odd. And then he's there and then gone all of a sudden. He vanishes. He, he shows up in other passages in locked rooms. So this really is Jesus. Luke goes out of his way to show us this is not a spirit. This really is a man. This is Jesus, the God-man. And for some reason, these two disciples did not know him as he walked beside them. We don't really know why or how this happened. To these two guys, this is the last man in Jer- in, that's walking away from Jerusalem that day to not know what had happened. The conversation that weighed heavily on their minds is summed up by the statement, okay? We hoped this prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, was the redeemer of Israel. So for these men, Jesus' death had, had made it painfully clear to them that there's no way he could be the Messiah because there's no way the Messiah would be tortured and put to death. Specifically, their expectations of a Messiah was for a powerful and spiritual political leader to lead Israel out of the oppression of the Romans. They are saying, Jesus is not who I thought he would be. And many of us find ourselves right there with these men. We've built up some sort of idea, or maybe others have, of Jesus and torn him down because he didn't give us something that we wanted or thought we deserved. We're right there with him. Jesus being the great teacher, he is. He cannot stay silent when he understands what they're saying. He says their foolish blindness about his purpose on earth is too much for him to keep quiet. We aren't told exactly the passages Jesus went through, but we know Jesus talked about what was foretold about him. And so I imagine it's just uh, some of the ones I'm about to read, and I'm going to read them fast. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Luke 9, 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Matthew 17, 12. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Mark 9, 12. And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things, and yet how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? These are only just a few of the many, many times it was foretold and taught about how the the Messiah would suffer and die and be resurrected. When I read passages like this, I'm astonished at our ability as human beings to just block certain truths, especially uncomfortable truths, from sinking into our consciousness. We just block them out, especially if they're uncomfortable. So to take it into another realm, I'm told that, that marriage counselors, when they're working with a, a, a relatively broken marriage, that they, they tell of one spouse that is completely shocked to find out that their marriage is in shambles. When they thought for years it was just going swimmingly well, they're shocked by it. It often takes a spouse doing something like leaving and separating for this other spouse to wake up and open their eyes and, 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 and to the truth that's been around them the whole time, that things are not at all okay. They just blocked it from their view. We can do this. And before, before we, we uh, move on, I want to look at this another way. I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm uh, often, as I read the Bible... Uh, because books are, because movies and television is such a big part of our culture. Often when I'm reading the Bible, I'm imagining what's happening as it, as it might play off on a screen. And so this is how I imagine this conversation going. 
Um, there's this modern editing technique that uh, is in uh, uh, comedic television of quickly cutting away from one scene uh, where one character says some sort of absolute statement and we, it quickly cuts to another scene showing that character doing or saying the opposite and quickly cutting back as if they're remembering this. Okay? And, and it shows the ridiculousness of what they just said and that's where the humor comes from. So I imagine it going down something like this. The disciples. Seriously. What are you talking about? When did Jesus say anything about what happened in the last few days? Cut quickly to Jesus all across Palestine multiple times saying, in, uh, saying those exact same things over and over again. Cutting quickly back to the disciples. True, 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 true. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. We heard that. We heard that. Uh, um, but, but in our defense, what we heard, that, that was figurative. He actually meant the opposite, right? That's how I see this scene going down. Not one of Jesus' closest followers expected the suffering, death, and resurrection. The women who came to the tomb were not bringing breakfast to a friend. They were not bringing breakfast to the Messiah. They were bringing balm and spices for the lifeless body of their dead friend. Without knowing it, we often overlook hard truths that we don't want to believe, especially in regards to hardship or suffering. We are capable of selective amnesia or spiritual blindness. I don't even know really what to call it when God has called us to something that we're uncomfortable with. And before you adjust your glasses and you fold your arms and you look down your nose at the silly disciples missing the point all over again, we are still doing this today. Here is just one exasperating example. If you'll, if you'll pull this up, we, we're going to see a list of the top ten Christian uh, best-selling books in the month of March 2016. Okay? So top 10 books. There was 25. I just put the 10 up here. If you look closely, let's switch it over. Three of the top 10 are what you might call adult coloring books. I didn't even know that was a thing. Okay? There, th another two of these titles up here are what we might call um, prosperity gospels. And, and these are books that mostly say that, that being a Christian and following Christ means uh, that we can be happy, healthy, and full of wealth right now here in the Christian life. It's just rubbish. Not one of these books on the list are about the role of suffering and hardship in the Christian life. It's like suffering is that uncomfortable truth that we avoid at all costs to the degree that we've convinced ourselves that to experience suffering or to expect it is completely unusual. And so we kick up the dust of we kick up the dust and we leave true hard discipleship behind us on our own disappointing road to Emmaus. Jesus is communicating a critical truth here. The only way to find your life is to lay it down. Let's listen to him say it this way in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's only after understanding this truth, as they share a meal after a long hike with their Jesus, that they really see him, not who they expected to see, but they really see Jesus for the first time. This king does not have his subject grovel at his feet. This king washes their feet. He takes their sin, shame, and punishment upon himself, and he redeems them back from the ashes of death. Once again, we've got to keep going. We've learned in this passage that uh, the resurrection is first heard and believed and preached by the least likely individuals. And second, in this new kingdom, life rises out of death. And let's read on. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands? 
that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning right here in Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. So after a day's walk from Jerusalem, going to Emmaus, after recognizing Jesus, they rushed back to their friends in Jerusalem. The text seems to say that they went all night long to get back to their friends to tell them the great news. Let's recap to set the scene in this, in this, uh, this room where all the disciples are gathered. Many of these people had left Jesus. They had abandoned him in his darkest hours as, as he was tortured and put to death. Okay? I want each of us right now to put ourselves right there in that room with these disciples and listen as Jesus says to them and us, peace to you. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your hearts? How beautiful is that? No matter how far we've traveled away from belief in a loving creator, no matter how heinous the crimes we've committed against God and our fellow man, our Jesus, with his scars and all, looks us and says, peace to you. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then Jesus does something amazing. He meets their doubt with the touch. Specifically, he says, touch these scars that I bore for you. I didn't deserve them. I took them for you. This is one of the most meaningful, moving passages of the Bible to me. You see, it's the disciples, listen to this, it's the disciples and our troubles and our weaknesses and our doubts that are fertile soil for the birth of faith. They're fertile soil for the birth of faith, our weakness. Our world doesn't work this way, does it? It doesn't. Do you ever hear the President of the United States expressing doubt about his policies in the media? It doesn't happen. Have you ever heard the, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company saying something like, I don't know, maybe our product line right now isn't all that great. It's kind of, probably not very competitive. You don't hear it. It doesn't happen. We are told to stuff away our weaknesses, quirks, and infirmities far away from sight. It's our practice personally and professionally to exploit our strengths. We use terms like leverage, and we beat up the competition. We squeeze our suppliers for lower margins. We don't have salesmen and women. We have a sales force. We do this so much and find so much success doing it that there's now a, a bit of an understanding of its negative effect on the markets. Overwhelming successes can for long stretches of time hide significant management or personnel problems within a business or a corporation. And all of a sudden, a business might seem to just collapse out of nowhere, and it starts to emerge out of the rubble that there were major problems there that no one saw because sales were high. We exploited our strengths. 
We do this. It's true in the business world. It's true in our personal lives. But in the kingdom of God, the tables have turned. It works the other way. The path to life is through death. The bridge to, our, to faith is through our own weakness. You cannot understand the good news of the resurrection without understanding your own brokenness. In the second letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul, he talks about some sort of spiritual or physical, possibly moral problem that he believes was allowed by God to plague him. And he pleads with God over and over to take it away from him. And God finally responds and says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says back, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's an author and an Episcopalian priest named Justin Holcomb that writes about this uh, passage. I love the way he says this. Listen to this quote. This is Jesus' upside-down approach to our world. It is the way of his grace. We live in a world where the biggest, best, and brightest succeed, while the littlest, last, and least get trampled. But Jesus disrupts and interrupts our quest for power and our lust for significance. The ways of our world are are rebuked by the inverted way of Jesus. Because of this, Christianity has from its beginning prized weakness and rebuffed strength. I love the way he says that. So if you feel insignificant, weak, washed up, abused, tarnished, damaged, or just forgotten, then the resurrection of Jesus and his defeat of death is your good news. Jesus' questions are for you. Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? On the other hand, if you're here today and you just feel unmoved, you feel stoic and self-sufficient, and you're proud of what your worth is and how little and just insignificant, and they might not even exist your weaknesses. You are in danger of being like the disciples at the beginning of this chapter, dismissing the resurrection of Jesus as an idle tale told by desperate people grasping for hope. You will be on the wrong side of the truth. So if you want to experience resurrection life, then get, look no further than your own weakness. Growing up, my family had tons of traditions, especially around the holidays. Uh, I distinctly remember more than one Easter Sunday morning, my mom and dad waking up, their six children, right before sunrise, uh, all six of us, and we would grab a sleeping bag and pillows, and we would head out to my parents' trampoline in their backyard. And my parents' house sits on like a really tall hill outside of a small town, and it used to overlook some cattle grazing hills and things like that, uh, pasture. It's now a golf course, but you know. This is how I remember it. <laughs> and we would, we would all, all six children huddle up uh, on the trampoline as my, my father would read the Easter story to his family. I'm not proud to say, but uh, I wasn't always really prepared for this story. And sometimes we sat quietly and we listened, and sometimes, especially me, we grumbled about how early it was and how cold we were. Most of the time, my heart was not prepared for the story. It just kind of went in one ear and out the other, okay? It's a lot like... All those times Jesus said all these things, and the people heard them but didn't hear them. It's like Jesus is walking next to his disciples, the giver of all life, and they talk about how sad they are. My spiritual blindness at these times was in full bloom. However, there have been a number of turning points in my life where the fertile soil of my weakness and brokenness prepared me for God to break in and fill me with faith. 
It's this awareness of my weakness that was the necessary bridge to following Jesus. If I never experienced broken, weak moments or seasons in my life, I may never have turned to faith in Christ. If your hands are shaking, your heart is pounding, because this story today has actually sounded a little different to you, and the resurrection of Jesus on your behalf has gripped you and it doesn't seem to let go, then I employ you to do what Jesus asked his disciples to do. Reach out and touch the scars that were born for your behalf. Resurrection is news for you, the least of us. It's your vulnerability that shouts the truth to you this morning. The path to life is through death. This is the kingdom of Jesus. Take up your cross and follow him. Lose your life and you will find it. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would not let go of those whom, whose minds you've opened this morning. Even if it's just one or two, this, it's here. That you would not let go of them. That you would let their hearts burn within them like the disciples. That they might have come here expecting to sit for a few minutes and hear some good music, but they li- leave with life for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen.